Hey, it's Garbage Brain University. I'm Drew Toothpaste. And I'm Natalie D. Today, we've got a special guest. Doug Bradley from Hellraiser, if you could believe it. Hello, Doug. Hi, Natalie. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So we had done an episode back in October where we watched all of the Hellraiser movies. God help you. It was pretty enjoyable for most of the way. <laughs> Towards the end, it kind of got a little, a little sketchy, but... For most of the way. <laughs> Where did the way end? Well, obviously, the last two were not my favorite. Okay. The the second to last one was absolutely not my favorite. <laughs> that one was the worst one, in my opinion. Where are you counting up to? Uh, I think that was nine. Was it? Was that nine? Was it was uh, the one okay. before judgment? Yeah. I was not involved after number eight, so. Right, and it definitely went downhill after that. I can't comment on. Uh, Judgment and, and Revelation is one I think you're referring to. <laughs> the rest of them, though, are always my favorites. Like, I, the first two or three are up there with my absolute favorite horror movies ever. And I think at, at one point, I think I stopped after number three for a while because it's like, there's so many of them, they can't be that good. But then we went back and watched all of them. They're, they're, all, they're all good. They're all fine. It's a difficult process once you get into, into franchise country. Right. For me as an actor, for all actors... In that situation, it's um, perfectly. I assume we don't have a language. No, absolutely not. Code no. on here. <laughs> you know, for most actors, it's a fucking godsend um, because it's paydays. You know, this is an insecure business at the very best of times. You never do know. You know, when one movie stops, you never know when the next one is going to start. Right. Uh, I remember when I was starting out, I read a quote by Cyril Cusack, a name maybe won't be immediately familiar to a lot of Americans. He was the father of Sinead Cusack, wonderful actor. Um, he said, uh, every, every time I finish a job, I think, well, that's it, I'll never work again. And every time I start a new job, I think, do I remember how to do this? <laughs> <laughs> uh, which was, you know, encouraging to hear when you were, when you, <laughs> when you were starting out. Um, all of that, you know, for me as an actor and put that over there before we kind of deal with, with the qualities or sequels. As I say, once, once you get into sequelitis, to some extent you're in trouble. You know, I've always said that one of the reasons why everything works so well in Hellraiser is that the Cenobites show up with no explanation as to literally who the hell they are right. and where the hell they came from. And they, Clive does this very clever thing where they offer lots of information about themselves. We're Cenobites. We're, we're explore, explorers in the further regions of experience. We're angels to some and demons to others, you know. None of which is actually telling you anything. Right, yeah. They're giving you lots of information that tells you precisely nothing about what they are and what they're about and where they came from and why they're there. And at the end of Hellraiser, you're really none the wiser. Right. I feel like that's part of the allure for Hellraiser with me is that Absolutely. so much of it is like up to interpretation and so much of it is not explained to you that it makes it scarier that you don't really know what's going on exactly. That's that's where the power lies, you know, the, the the powerful things, the scary things are the things we can't put labels on, the things we don't understand, even though, you know, they Clive doesn't try to hide them. They're not shadowy figures. They stand right in front of you and talk directly at you. You know, as soon as we're in Hellbound, we're starting to deal with backstories. And that's inevitable. You know, two things happen when you make a sequel. One is that when everybody went into the theater to watch Hellraiser for the first time, obviously they'd never seen a Hellraiser absolutely no expectations when you sit down to watch hellbound everybody's got a sequel in their heads 
everybody thinks they know where this story should go next, but it's only going one place, which is where the makers of that particular film have decided it will go. Immediately, people can start to say, oh, well, I didn't, I didn't think that's what they would do with the sequel. I would have done something different, you know? Right. And also, as I say, we introduced a little bit of backstory with Penhead and, and to a lesser extent, the other Cenobites. And as soon as you do that, you lessen the mystery. Mm-hmm. As soon as you explain, you take an edge off the power, you know? So I think there was always always that trade-off going on. But I, I think we pretty much kept our heads above water. The only one I, in the first eight movies that I seriously don't like, only because I think it didn't work, is uh, Inferno, the fifth the cop movie. movie. Yes. The first one's the cops. Sounds like an episode of Friends, doesn't it? <laughs> the, one, the one after the one with the spaceship in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not an actor. Neither of us are actors. <laughs> but uh, it seems like musicians have the same problem. You know, you put out a great album, and then people don't want you to repeat it. They don't want you to do the same thing, but they don't want you to, to make something that they don't want or they're not expecting. That difficult second album. Yeah. Right, right. exactly. Yeah. I also think the thing is with with Hellraiser, there is like a little bit of backstory, but there's not a ton of it. Even when you get to the end of it, you kind of have like a little bit of backstory, but there's still so much that is missing. And like you go back and you read the novels, you read the and there's still like so much where it's like not completely drawn out. And I think that is like I said, that's part of the appeal to me. The other thing that I like with Hellraiser compared to other franchises is that the Cenobites in Pinhead are not the same as like the villains in those other movies. They carry themselves in a different way. They're obviously intelligent, whereas like there's other villains in horror movies like Jason and like Leatherface where they are like lumbering and they're you're not convinced or thinking about anything and that is not the vibe i ever get from from the hellraiser movies it seems to appeal to like it's like a little bit smarter than the other the other franchises it's certainly very different obviously pinhead likes a good conversation leatherface michael and uh, and jason are, are a bit limited in that department yeah absolutely <laughs> don't have a lot to say for themselves. Freddy has a great deal to say for himself, but, you know, it's snarky, yes. And uh, if in doubt, he just calls everyone bitch, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I'm not running Freddy down. I've been, been a fan of the character from the get-go. But there's a lot of differences. I mean, I've always said that, you know, Pinhead is not the boogeyman. He's not He's not hiding around the corner in the shadows waiting to jump you and, and you know, ease the stiletto blade between the fourth and fifth ribs. That's not his way. Indeed, I've said as well that when I, when I was approaching doing Hellraiser, because I, I was a fan of horror when I was a teenager, you know, before I knew I was going to be an actor, I was a fan of horror movies. So I had it in my head. I'm going to play the monster in a horror film. But actually, reading the screenplay, talking to Clive, and certainly as we started filming, of course, the fact is in, in Hellraiser, the monsters are Frank and Julia. Right. And Pinhead is really more an impartial judge in the proceedings. I don't mean to, to imply for a moment that I think Pinhead's motives are pure. Far from it. But you have to... There's a, there's a whole set of steps that have to be undertaken before you ever get near Pinhead. You have to become aware of the existence of this thing called the Lament configuration. You have to find one. You have to solve it, open it with the right motivation. As you know, we find out in Hellbound, it's not hands that call us, it is desire, um, says Pinhead. And 
And so then once the box is open and you're confronted by the Cenobites, even then, you know, Pinhead wants to stop and pass the time of day with you. I think it's very satisfying to watch because whoever opens it and whoever summons Pinhead always deserves it. Deserve is maybe not the right word. They're asking for it. (laughs) (laughs) They're inviting him over. (laughs) Uh, That's a nice distinction, Drew, I think, yes. May may not deserve deserve it, but certainly asking for it. Um, It's that bargaining process, you know. It's you don't buy a lament configuration. There's always that question that's dropped into into that bartering. What's it worth? How badly do you want this? I'm not telling you how much it costs, but... Well, don't they say in one, they say in one has always been yours. Right, yes. Uh, that's the idea that you don't find it, it finds you. There's almost a parallel also with having to have the lament configuration and having to have the desire to open it and invite invite these characters into your into your situation it almost has parallels with like the old stories of like vampires where you would have to invite the vampire into yes. your home as well but also you were talking Natalie about the endless possibilities of the the hellraiser universe to coin the phrase what we did in in hellbound of course was establish a specific time frame for Pinhead. We introduced the character of Elliot Spencer without, he's not named, but at the beginning of Hellbound in the Quonset hut, and he's opening the box. And the story there from what we learn about him in Hellraiser 3 is that, you know, he's a captain in the in the British Army in the First World War. In fact, at the beginning of Hellbound, he's in India. So um, he's survived the First World War somehow and uh, stayed in the army, and he's now in India. And we would be in the early 1920s where the British Army was putting down what what known in the history books when I was going through school as the Indian mutinies. That's where we find him. In fact, there would have been two prior scenes at the opening of Hellbound that would have shown Elliot in a street bazaar somewhere unnamed in India. And he finds the place he's looking for and he goes in and there would have been exactly that bartering scene that we've just discussed where Elliot acquires the Leman configuration. Unfortunately, just as they were transferring the budget from Los Angeles to London, Black Monday or something, some horrible financial crash happened. And just just the movement in exchange rates that that created wiped about a third off the budget. New World, who, were, who produced the first two films, said this is too much for us to make up the shortfall, a substantial whack of money, um, to the extent that there was even some discussion about postponing filming. But they decided to go ahead. And those two opening scenes were among a number of scenes that bit the dust. They were only establishing scenes and they required um, two sets building just for those brief scenes. So it was a that was a chunk of money that could be saved. Disappointing for me. But, oh, right. Yeah. But, so we established then that Pinhead operates in a time frame from the early 1920s to now or now, whatever century it was in the future, that he meets his, his demise supposedly at the end of Bloodline. Um, but we know that the box was created by Le Marchand in the 18th century. So there's, you know, there's the best part of 200 years of uh, of operation of the Lament configuration before Pinhead even came into existence, which again was picked up to some extent with the story of Angelique in Bloodline. The Hellraiser, Hellraiser mythology, if there is one, you know, it opens out in an awful lot of different directions. Right. Another thing that I wanted to touch on 
in regards to Hellraiser that I think sets it apart from from other horror movies and their franchises is that the aesthetics in Hellraiser are so much better. The character design is so excellent. And then the way that the films are shot is unique. Like you, you could tell you're watching a Hellraiser movie. Like if you just take a still from it, you could you could tell that's what you're looking at. And there's almost like a new wave style to it. It reminds me of like like 80s, like new wave and like the way the camera angles are and the lighting. It's always it's always excellent and it always has such a unique feel to it compared to a lot of other horror movies. And I was wondering if that is ever anything that you have like, is that something that you guys were aware of when you were working on the film? Is, were you aware that that? Well, that was those decisions were above my pay grade. Um, <laughs> uh, which wasn't difficult. Uh, my pay grade was pretty low on Hellraiser. But I think you I think you're right. And I've, I've observed that myself. And I think there are two elements in play that make that happen in what was a very happy partnership. The first one is Clive. And of course, everyone's aware that he's a painter and an artist, and he always has been and a, a diligent student of cinema from as early as I knew him. So he has a very visual eye and he has a very clear idea of visual style that he wants. He had a problem, however, which was that he had never directed uh, on a, a proper grown-up film set before. He'd never worked. He, he'd written a couple of screenplays that were made into films, so he'd spent some time on set while those were happening. Rawhead Rex and uh, Underworld, I think, was the other one. There are apocryphal stories out there which um, are actually pretty much true. One was that in the approach to Hellraiser, he went to... Uh, his local library in Crouch End in North London to look for a book that he had seen there and had had out previously called How to Direct a Movie. <laughs> but when he got there, someone else had already <laughs> taken it out, so he, 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 he didn't even have that advantage. Um, and there was also a story that when he arrived on set on day one on Hellraiser, I was not around, so I can't confirm it from my own experience, but he said, okay, so who's in charge here? <laughs> there was there was general kind of shuffling of feet, you know, before his assistant director said, um, you are? <laughs> <laughs> he didn't know the technical side of movie making and he didn't know the technical language of movie making. And if he had had a bloody-minded, lazy DP landed on him who you know, might well have taken one look at Clive and thought, oh, all right, we've got a greenhorn here. I can take an end run round you all over the place here and make life very easy. You would have had a very different film. Clive was blessed with Robin Vigeon, uh, who's brilliant, but also took the time. And that was important. And, and I was aware, you know, that Clive would be saying, I want it to look like, and he'd, he'd make a visual cross-reference to classical paintings or, you know, something like that. He would make a, a reference to what he wanted it to look like. And Robin would take the time to say, okay, we can do that. If we're going to do that, then we need to do this and we need to do that and we need to do this and we need to do that, you know, in terms of lighting, angles, lenses. And if we do this, we probably can't do this, you know. And I know there was a point where Robin took the trouble to teach Clive lenses and all of that. I remember then a point being on set, you know, and Clive said, can't we shoot this on a 
on a whatever lens com- and Robin saying, oh, fuck, why did I ever teach this? <laughs> <laughs> now, now not only does he know what he wants it to look like, he knows how to make it look like that. <laughs> yeah. So the aesthetic of Hellraiser, it is that mix of Clive's visual eye, his imagination and his sense of style and Robin Vigin taking the trouble to work with him and wanting to take the trouble to make sure that the director's vision was on screen and he did an absolutely magnificent job. I'd also give a shout out to New World in this regard. Clive uh, and his producer, Chris Figg, they walked into a pitch meeting with New World in Los Angeles. They, New World basically said, yes, here's the money, go back to London, make your movie, and you can direct it. I don't think that would happen now. I don't think there's any possibility that they would fund a movie out of what was then a major minor studio, New World, and let someone with absolutely no experience, no resume to speak of at all, beyond a couple of juvenile movies made on 8mm and 16mm, and say, yeah, we trust our money in your hands to make this movie. Well, I think that speaks also to Clive Barker's ability to tell stories. Like, his novels are all excellent. Like, I've I read all of them. And so, I mean, like, being able to meet with, like, film people and, and have and make that arrangement based on, like, no experience just shows that they were able to read the script and they could tell that it, it was exceptional. Sure. He's also a great talker, and he's always been brilliant at lighting fires under an idea. You talk to Clive, and you'll, you'll get excited about anything that he puts your way. And I'd love to have been a fly on the wall in that meeting. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I bet that's part of the reason why New World were prepared to take a risk on someone with, you know, a stress again, not just someone who was inexperienced, someone with absolutely zero experience of of the job that he was volunteering himself for. But I would imagine it would be his commitment and his vision for his movie that would have made them feel yeah you know let's take a jump one thing that has always struck me growing up and going to the video store the iconic head of pinhead on the vhs tapes and asking my folks to rent it and they'd say no (laughs) Uh, something i've always been curious about is the character of pinhead obviously requires a lot of makeup but i've read over and over again that at some point you started doing the makeup on yourself. No, 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 no. I don't, I, I, I don't know. Uh, God bless the internet. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Well, I do know how this story gained traction. I did start taking the makeup off. <laughs> okay. So when rap is called, you know, and everybody runs away, those of us in prosthetic makeup don't get to run away. We have to go back and sit in the makeup chair again for what is a, a process of mm, 30 minutes to an hour. The foam latex is literally glued all over your face. I had a, a skull cap on, which is basically like a, a latex um, swimming cap. It was more necessary then than it is now because I, I had hair in 1986, um, about as long as yours, Drew, actually a little bit longer, I think, and with more on top. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, I had, I had hair in 1986, too. I know how it is. <laughs> I had my hair under the skull cap, 
So, which means this is the only bit that's not glued to you, because then the the makeup is glued to the skull cap. So you break open the top of the head, and then you, it's jars of oil and brushes to break down the adhesive you have to go slowly because if you pull too hard a it hurts and b if you pull too hard you'll take the makeup off but you'll take a layer of skin with it so i became aware that i because i know what my pain threshold is appropriately for playing pinhead i suppose um i knew how much leverage on the makeup i could tolerate but also it's weird the makeup removal was a process that i hated really really hated it it made me feel ill i don't know whether that was just fumes off the oil but there'd always come a point where you'd you'd have it down to the eyebrows and this makeup would be hanging over your eyes hanging off your eyebrows i used to feel so miserable and so pathetic and helpless and it's a weird very weird process also when your face begins to emerge from inside this cocoon of pinhead that you've been wrapped up in all day it's very strange moments. So in order to control that process, I, I did often used to just say, you know, just just give me brushes and, and jars and let me get on with it. You know, if I hurt myself, I haven't, I'm not going to scream abuse at you. I can only, <laughs> <laughs> I can scream abuse at myself. So I did that. And there are, there are a couple of uh, photographs, I guess, which were staged which is me in in front of the mirror with the hellraiser makeup on with a brush you know doing that i started to see these tales that i applied my own makeup oh okay. jesus no i know where my talents lie but and, and they don't lie in that direction if i had applied the pinhead makeup you wouldn't be so impressed by it <laughs> i can assure you of that i did also on on hellraiser 3 i assisted i assisted bob keen doing some second unit work as a kind of uh, extra member of his makeup crew because he was shorthanded and it was a night shoot and we were doing night shoots all week and I was working a couple of nights that week so in order to stay on turnaround I just used to go on set and hang out all night to you know keep myself awake and he was shorthanded and I you know I said um well you know I'm standing around doing nothing and uh, and he looked at me and he said okay you're on. For, uh, for about half an hour, I was uh, seconded as a member of the uh, special effects makeup crew, and they gave me a credit. So I think these, these stories may have come together to create the legend that I applied my own makeup, but absolutely not, no. <laughs> How heavy was the outfit? Because that outfit looks like it weighs 80 pounds. <laughs> the, the costume in the first two movies looks wonderful, brilliantly made, designed and constructed by Jane Wildgoose. She was Clive's pick to make the Hellraiser costumes, and it was a brilliant call by him. She was her own department with her own budget, so she wasn't part of the main wardrobe department of budget. She wasn't part of the special effects budget. She and her assistant, Rosemary, they put the costumes together, and they were a brilliant piece of work made out of proper aviator's leather, serious leather with a corset arrangement at the back to tie us into. It was by far and away the most uncomfortable and awkward costume that I wore through the eight movies, but they never looked that good again. And I would put up with the discomfort again in order to have that quality of costume. It's it's, it's brilliant. And there's detail on there that you never got to see. Down to things like in the, the handles of the weapons that hang on 
Pinhead's waist. They were inlaid with pictures of, with images of people being tortured. Wow. And, you, you, and it's never been seen, never been seen, which is a shame. But that's the level of attention to detail that she was putting into them. It wasn't so much heavy, although it was, but it was restricting. It was restrictive. A lot of the physicality of Pinhead came from me getting the costume on for the first time and thinking, I'm fucked. (laughs) (laughs) The collar is quite tight and it's stiff. I have no movement in my head at all. The leather on the arms meant raising my arm was not straightforward. Bending it, almost impossible. And because of the collar, plus I'm wearing a skirt, my nightmare was how to walk without tripping over the damn thing. So I taught myself a kind of glide where I'd move one foot forward and kick the skirt out of the way, put my foot down, move the other foot forward and kick the skirt out of the way and put the foot down, which meant he walked slowly. And then I realized, well, this is a strength because I can't, If I want to turn to look at you, I can't do that. But what I can do is... (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Which is threatening. It's menacing. It's more effective. Yes. But that I discovered that by accident. That was the result of me standing in my dressing room, or we we didn't even have dressing rooms at at, um, Cricklewood when we were making the first movie, but, you know, standing in front of a mirror thinking thinking initially, I'm fucked, I can't move, I can't, how do I act? I can't do anything. Well, so the answer was, you know, your weakness is always your strength. Make friends with it and learn how to work with it. But it was restricting, and I was literally, I mean, I had a I had a leotard underneath the costume, which had foam latex pieces for the chest pieces with the flaps of flesh. And again, for the for the belly button. Mm-hmm. Then the jacket went on and it was corseted up at the back. And then the flaps of flesh on the latex that was attached to the leotard were hooked. The tool belt went from the jacket through the hole in the belly button, mm-hmm. which is on the foam latex attached to the leotard under the jacket and then round again to the side. So now I am in the leotard, which is physically attached to this jacket. It's not coming off in in a hurry. Bathroom breaks were kept to a minimum. (laughs) (laughs) It was a complicated process. (laughs) I'll say no more. The slow, deliberate movements of Pinhead were what made it so menacing. I think it's great to hear that that was just a result of the costume. It was that, and then also it was Clive. When the Cenobites came on set for the first time, you know, I mean, he was wetting himself. He had drawn, he had drawn a lot of pictures of these things. Now he saw them standing embodied in front of him. And now he could look at them in a camera frame. On my first day, I, I had one note from him. He would say, this is fantastic. This is so wonderful. I can't tell you, I can't tell you how amazing this looks, how powerful it looks. Do less. Okay, yeah. So he'd take the performance down a peg and he'd come running back again. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's great. Great. Don't change anything. Just do less. That is something that I always appreciate in art and in everything else is when when you have a piece of art, if it's a, if it's a performance or if it's like an art piece, the, the more simplified it is, 
the more important it is that you do it perfectly. And so by reining you in and reining you in and reining you in and you still having to give that performance, it, it makes it like it's so deliberate. And it's just like there's nothing unnecessary about it. It's a difficult note to take as an actor. You can take it up to a point. Do less. Okay, I did less. Great. Do less. Okay. <laughs> I'm not doing very much now. Oh, great. Fantastic. Now do less. It takes you to the point at which you're doing nothing. I'm just standing there, dead-faced, letting the lines come out. And if I had said that to Clive at the time, I would. if I had said, I'm not doing anything, just standing here saying lines, he would have said exactly. And what he was saying was, you have no idea what you look like. Once that image is up on that screen, as big as it's going to be in the cinema, you don't need to do anything to sell it to us. In fact, the more you let your face be completely dead, the more powerful it's going to be. So having talked about making friends with the costume and working with the costume, not trying to fight against it, that also is a process of making friends with the makeup. Natural instinct as an actor is to try and emote through the makeup, mm -hmm. try and... Mm -hmm. Try and impose yourself as an act on the makeup. You can't beat this thing. You cannot beat this thing. It has you completely, <laughs> literally, in it under its control. So just make friends and go with it. You know. I know this came out quite a long time ago, but uh, you wrote a book about masks and costumes. You can go to my website, uh, <laughs> dogbradley.com forward slash store. Oh, okay. Uh, I didn't set this up beforehand. I just happened to have one <laughs> <laughs> lying on top of my printer at the moment. Um, that's the original edition of it because I was checking something the other day, which is why it's down off my uh, bookshelves at the moment. So mid-90s, that was published when it was called Sacred Monsters, um, published by Titan Books. And it's still in print, but they dropped the Sacred Monsters. So it's now called Behind the Mask of the Horror Actor. You can certainly get it from my website. It'll come to you with uh, with a dedication. There's also um, Spine Chillers audiobook collection. There's classic horror stories narrated by me. Guest readings from Robert Englund and Jeffrey Coombs. There's 13 volumes of those. And I introduced uh, a new thing at the beginning of this year, which I called Virtual Convention. So you can order it, say, a 10 by 8 then I will, I will greet you at my table on a video as if we were at a convention. And, you know, I'll say, hi, it's nice to meet you. And you ordered this 10 by 8 and I sign it. I put the 10 by 8 in the mail and send them the video. That's been pretty cool innovation that we instituted. That was a long way around answer to, yes, my book is still available. <laughs> We want everyone to make sure they can get it if they if they're interested in picking up. And I know that a lot of the people who listen to our podcast are, are into the Hellraiser movies, and they're going to be excited to see this. Doug, I was going to ask you. I've heard two things. One is that Clive Barker is reclaiming copyright for I think, if not the Hellraiser series, then the original one. The original one. I think and on December first, there was a headline on December first saying that he had got the rights on it. And then that HBO is making a Hellraiser show. Can you uh, can you say if you're involved in that? Yeah, well, uh, I heard yesterday that I, I knew that Clive was proceeding to try and get the rights back. And I heard yesterday that he has, to a limited extent, I think. I'm not a lawyer. I haven't talked to Clive about it, so I don't know. But as you say, it sounds like he has the rights to the Hellbound Heart and to Hellraiser. Not, I think, 
to the subsequent movies in the franchise. And I'm not quite sure exactly what difference that makes in terms of him having full control of the rights or not, uh-huh. or exactly how that shakes down. I honestly don't know, but I'm aware that certainly in what I, in terms of what I was reading yesterday, and I'm only, that's, you know, right. it's what I read on the internet, same as everybody else. Uh, that's the distinction. But I also understand that it means that now there will be no future Hellraiser projects without his agreement. I mean, I think that's probably fine because I think his vision is probably the one that's most trustable in terms of... <laughs> you would you would think so. <laughs> it's it's his baby after all. Yeah, it is. Um, like, no one's going to have better ideas about it than, than he did. <laughs> that would seem to make sense to me. Um, then there are there are two Hellraiser issues that have been much discussed. One one is the remake. I'm not I'm not into that idea. I've been hearing <laughs> talk about remakes for 25 years or more. Obviously, significant things have changed in that recent time because of Harvey Weinstein and the implosion of Miramax and the Weinstein Company, and of course, Dimension Films, which have been had control of the franchise from Hellraiser 3 onwards. Dimension Films is no more. I think it's Warner Brothers now in the proposed remake or reboot or reimagining or whatever the hell you want to call it. My understanding is that this change in terms of the rights in relation to Clive kicks in on December next year. I don't know whether that means that if anybody gets gets a remake underway between now and then, Clive has no control over it. I, I honestly don't know. Uh, and then there's been, uh, as you say, yes, HBO Max, uh, there was talk of a Hellraiser TV series, and then even... Even before the news about Clive and the rights, he was already announced as being on board with the, the HBO series as executive producer. Okay. And more than that, I do not know. Whenever I say that, if I, if I say that at a Q&A in conventions, then of course I immediately read online afterwards. Well, of course he knows. He just can't. So I stress that when I say I don't know... I mean, I don't know. I have not had any conversations with <laughs> anybody about either the remake or the TV series. I had my first conversation about Hellraiser, the TV series, when we were on location in North Carolina in 1991, making Hellraiser 3 with Larry Cuppin, who's one of the names I see uh, attached to the Hellraiser TV series. So, but that was that was my first conversation with someone about a Hellraiser TV series about 30 years ago. Within the last decade, my agent had got as far as negotiating a per episode fee for me for a proposed Hellraiser TV series. And then, and then everything went silent. So uh, that's that. I have no idea what people's thinking. I mean, I, I assume that lurking behind your inquiry is am I going to be playing Pinhead again in either or both of these proposed things? And the answer is, I have no idea. I mean, if they knew, if they, if they were interested in making it good, they would have you do it. <laughs> if what they were wanting was to have it be as good as, as it possibly could be, they, I don't see why they would go with someone different. But it's not up to me. <laughs> no one asks me about it. <laughs> I, you, you, you and me both, Natalie. Um, yeah, uh, right. <laughs> uh, 
I'm a realist about it. Could I do it again? Absolutely, I could. And would I, all things being equal, write script? And obviously, Clive being involved again changes the landscape for me. Could I do it again? Absolutely. And would I do it again? Absolutely. I have to be realistic that I was uh, 32 turning 33 when I played Pinhead for the first time in Hellraiser. I ain't 32 turning 33 anymore. The great thing about latex is that to some extent, that doesn't make any difference. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's not what you look like underneath that, that makes a difference. It's, it's, it's what the makeup does. But I could find you any number of reasons why people would want to go in a different direction. And those are decisions that producers and uh, directors, assistant producers, exec- executive producers will, will make that I will not be part of. Or have not been so far. So, are there any are there any projects that you're working on currently that that you would like to let our listeners know about? Or I did. Uh, I think it's it's just come out on Adult Swim. Um, JJ Villard's Grim Fairy Tales, which is kind of uh, wild modern updates of the Grimm's fairy tales. And I'm in an episode called Boy Punzel of one of those and uh, it was a great a lot of fun to do and he's used a lot of horror actors in them Ashley Lawrence has done one I think Heather Langenkamp is in in the episode that I'm in which is the Rapunzel story called Boy Punzel uh, so I think that's that's out now and I've been doing a lot of recording for a project and I think I still have more recording to come on that, though, again, that all hit the buffers at the beginning of this year. Done quite a lot of recording for it. It's a, a Netflix animated series called Defense of the Ancients, if I'm remembering it correctly. I think that was due to be coming out about now, but I guess everything kind of ground to a halt at the beginning of this year, so I'm not quite sure. I did some uh, re-record, new recording in, in the summer. People may be aware that I voiced the... Sith Emperor in the Star Wars video game, The Old Republic. So I did some new recording for that, for the new version of the game, I guess, or a new iteration of the game. That's a very strange process doing that because, you know, Lucasfilm are very anal retentive and you don't get to see a script in advance. When you get your script on the day, it's your lines. I have no idea, you know, I'm talking about, you know, you know, some weird Star Wars name. <laughs> I have I have no idea who the hell I'm talking about, whether I like them or, you know. What was even more complicated with this new stuff was that the Sith Emperor appeared to have become three separate entities. I asked uh, I asked the, the guy I, I was recording in a studio here in Pittsburgh, and they were down the line in, I guess, in L.A., and I asked for clarification of this, and by the time the Star Wars nerd at their end had finished explaining it all to me, I understood less than I did in the first place. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that, and also uh, fans of Cradle of Filth will be very happy to hear that um, I've lent my voice for the fifth time now to uh, the new Cradle of Filth album, which is uh, coming out spring next year. I uh, I did that recording this year again with me in a studio here in Pittsburgh with Danny and his uh, producer on the line in the UK. So that, that was fun to do that again. I had done four albums with Danny previously. I think I'm going to be starting a new audiobook recording. I think rights issues and so forth have to be sorted out with that. So I'm 
I won't tell you what it is, but it is, let me be cryptic, it is Hellraiser related and it is not the Hellbound Heart. That's it. <laughs> and also also my YouTube channel, sorry, my YouTube channel is ongoing, which I started, uh, is basically me reading. I started with a 10-part serialization, I guess is the word I'm looking for, of uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And I've done some shorter pieces since then. You can find that on YouTube and Perfect. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so before we go, uh, we're going to put this out a little bit before Christmas. Is there anything spooky? Is there anything horror related that you do for Christmas, whether it's uh, whether it's Krampus or uh, Saturnalia? I always was a traditional Christmas person. I'm less so now. I'm perfectly happy to wish people a Merry Christmas. You know, all this nonsense that Trump gave us permission to say Merry Christmas again. <laughs> One of the many fictitious things that exist in his head alone. <laughs> Complete not a bullshit. The, the whole war on Christmas thing, I think, is is nonsense. You know, and, and those who, who make a big deal about that, I think, you know, always ought to be aware that the festival is much, much older than Christianity. It's a midwin it is a midwinter festival. People get very upset when people want to rename it the winter holidays or something. That's exactly what it is. It's exactly what it was. You know, it marks the solstice, it marks the turning of the year, the return of light and warmth, the promise of light and warmth, and the crops will grow again and the animals will have baby animals and um and that's the heart of the Yuletide. And most most of the images that we relate to Christmas, the holly and the ivy, Christmas trees, bringing greenery into our homes, particularly evergreens, which were seen to have magical properties because unlike all the deciduous stuff, they didn't die. They magically kept going through the winter. And when, when all the other flowers were dying, the holly bush festooned itself with beautiful red berries and mistletoe. You know, which you don't see until all the leaves fall off the trees and you see it hanging off the boughs because it's a, it's a parasite plant. And if anybody's ever squeezed a mistletoe berry, you know exactly why mistletoe had fertility associations. <laughs> <laughs> there is one thing that I, that I do do. What's that? It's, I mean, you know, we do, we do when Steph's kids were younger, you know, put up the tree and all of that. I don't make too much of a big deal at Christmas anymore, but there is one little thing that I um, I started doing for myself, which has now become like an annual ritual. Um. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 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 oh, it's perfect. Pinhead in a Santa hat. So there you go. I don't think you can beat that. Merry fucking Christmas. <laughs> 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 I don't personally have any spooky things around Christmas, but, it, you know, it's an interesting thing, I think, that spookiness attaches itself to Christmas. With, this, with, with the Saturnalia, there's all there's all of the history of in ancient times where they were initially would do offerings of the bodies of gladiators and, and things around Saturnalia and how then that 
evolved into them mm-hmm. instead of giving bodies or heads they would give masks and effigy and they would dress up and things like that and so there's like a lot of overlap even with with halloween and saturnalia absolutely well i i was um i was always confused as a boy about the 12 days of christmas because the 6th of january is 12th night mm-hmm. and therefore the 12th day of christmas and if you count back you have to start on the 26th of december First day of Christmas is the day after Christmas Day, which I knew growing up in England as Boxing Day. The idea of Boxing Day is very confusing to Americans. It's a it's a long story. Nobody really knows, to be honest, why Boxing Day is called Boxing Day. But that has to be the first day of Christmas. That was traditionally the Feast of Stephen, St. Stephen's Day, whereas Christmas Day was the holy day. It was it was the day of the Mass of the nativity the 25th of december is stolen from the romans oh yeah the 25th of december was the day on which the romans celebrated the birth of mithras who was the romans sun god obviously being in midwinter that's why the place of the sun god is important because it's the the rebirth of the sun light in darkness and and all the rest of that stuff that christianity has brought to itself but again far predates christianity And then, uh, you're absolutely right, then the Saturnalia would start the following day. And the Saturnalia was 12 days of games in the Colosseum and elsewhere, you know, gladiators and animals and all the rest of the fun stuff that the Romans used to get up to. So that's the 12 days of Christmas has nothing to do with Christmas. The 12 days of Christmas is the 12 days of the Saturnalia that ends on the 6th of January, which is now pulled into the Christian calendar as the Feast of the Epiphany. You know, we have a bunch of, we have a bunch of skulls. We have a bunch of uh, occult stuff. We have a bunch of weird little paintings and stuff. I think, I think the spookiest we ever did Christmas was I lost the stockings one year. So uh, I had to set out everybody's boots. You think Kramp has stolen? <laughs> Probably. Maybe, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Listen, Doug, thanks again so much for coming on here. Uh, Again, DougBradley.com if you want to check out what he has for sale, if you like Hellraiser. We also have an Instagram page, so you can follow me there on Instagram. And what's your Instagram address? Don't ask me. I'm no idea. (laughs) We'll we'll figure out what it is and we'll put a link in with, with everything else. Again, we're at patreon.com slash garbagebrainuniversity. If you're not a subscriber, you get 70 episodes you haven't heard, access to our private Discord chat. Doug, thanks again for joining us. We had a lot of fun. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. (laughs) Bye now. Garbage Brain University is brought to you by... Harlem Township, Ohio, Delaware County's finest township northeast of Columbus, Ohio. Scenic. Smells good. Also, we're brought to you by... Hazel Technologies. The best place to get packets to include in your packages when you are shipping fruit. Ship your fruit fresh with Hazel Technologies. That's what they told us. (laughs) Again, thanks to Doug Bradley for being with us this episode. It was excellent. Thanks, Doug. Bye-bye. 